0: In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 Greatest Marvel Stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31, 2014 to June 1, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher.
1: Ben.
2: so if i'm getting this right jim you went out of your way to pick a complex critically acclaimed book that we were going to have a lot of things to talk about
1: <laughs> okay it's
2: pretty accurate
1: I just I I have been rereading those recently because I look I was lucky enough to score uh, a lot of the hardcovers mm. um, nice. for a really good price, so I've been kind of rereading them, and I I'd forgotten how cool that issue was. So when oh the, that
2: that was a dense dense read it is
1: it's yeah. a great story though oh it's yeah dense. it was a great story especially I mean everything it builds up to that and...
2: just to counteract that Alan you picked like the shittiest book you could find. <laughs>
3: Uh, well, look, it, it has been brought up on this show and others before. Yeah, we classic, brought up. we did our, our 1984
2: in review, which just See? posted on Saturday, and it came up in that I'm show. I'm
3: following up to that. Look, I, I I just heard the name of the book. You want me to listen to every detail, every word <laughs> you guys say?
2: <laughs> I don't know if you guys are I, familiar with each other, by the way. Jim, Alan, Alan, Jim. Good morning, Hi, Jim. You too, sir. Jim is uh, from the Legion of Dudes Half Hour Wasted yes. group, and Alan is... Alan does the Relatively Geeky Network.
3: I specialize in cheap comic books. That's my specialty.
2: Yeah, I was just well, saying... Uh,
1: that, uh, you certainly got, made the grade with your choice tonight.
2: I got, I got, a, I got a notice that the local... Well, one of the local stores around here... because
1: There are actually quite a few
2: local stores around here, which I'm lucky enough to have, but very few of them have real cheap bins. And uh, I got to notice that one of the stores is running a New Year's sale. I'm going over there tomorrow, and their normal $1 books are 4 for for dollar. Oh, nice. wow. So I'm, I'm going so there, they, and I'm planning on coming home with a lot of books if I can, as long yeah, as it's um, not total, total crap in there. One
1: At of the court bigger reach, dealers around here, um, I'm sorry, New what? Dimension. Oh, I was going to say New Dimension Comics. Like, one of the bigger dealers around here, they have, like, three different stores, but they also have a warehouse, and they have a warehouse sale twice a year. And it's uh, they charge by the pound.
3: Yeah, I've
1: I've I've heard of that. Yeah, it's a really
3: the good deal.
2: Host, uh, he co-host. He uh, he he recently bought a a run of Storm Man by the pound. <laughs> what, what do they charge a pound at this place?
1: I think I think for the the um, uh, these special events or the the warehouse sales, it's like, I think it's fifty cents a pound or something. It's pretty cheap. Um, the last crazy. time I was there, though, it was funny. Um, Ed Pisker actually is the one who turned me on to it, and uh, I went there last time. And there was literally like a whole long box of Tribe Number One, and there were like six six long boxes of nothing but the Deathmate crossover. Do you remember that? Yeah. The Valiant uh, image crossover, but uh, I, 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 I was mean, not just, reading that. I
3: I have seen numbers of those in my cheap bin yeah. diving.
1: But uh, if you can get through all that stuff and just you know find some other thing, I mean, I found some really cool stuff. I got like a, a whole, almost all complete run of the color version of Zot. Um, Zot
2: came up in the 1984
1: review as well. It did. It did. Yeah, Zot's an awesome book. Is it? I, I, I wrote I a whole series. I had of no
2: familiarity with it, and I made fun of it just from the title. Oh no, it's a great book. Scott McCloud. I picked
3: before, up. Huh? I, I'm. I. I picked up Zot one off the the black and white way way
1: way back when. Yeah, I've got the omnibus while. of all I the black and white stuff. Anymore. It holds yeah. up, man. It really does. Maybe yeah,
2: maybe I, I got to be a little bit more open minded on that one.
1: I trust yes, trust um, it on it. Yes, yeah, Scott McCloud before before yeah. he wrote Understanding Comics. It's like all the stuff in Understanding Comics he he played into Zot in different ways. So,
2: oh, all right. So, yeah, I may uh, I have to keep an open mind, like I said. Maybe if, if if now now if I see Zod in the bins tomorrow, I will uh, at a quarter there book, I will purchase them.
3: That is your that's your homework.
2: Yeah there this this go. is this is officially my homework for tomorrow's sale. <laughs> Well, I mean, the beauty of it at twenty five cents a book is you really don't have to do your homework. Like if you were spending a buck a book, and you walked home and you got you know you you walked into the house and you realized you bought three books that you already had, you'd be pissed off at throwing away three bucks.
3: There's a Mm. yeah. There's a point at what it's a quarter. Yeah,
2: that's exactly it. I mean, I'm not going to buy forty books that I already owned. I may you know I may end up finding you know one or two in the pile that I did, but you know what? I'll I'll swallow that fifty cents, no problem.
1: Yeah, I've been, um, i I converted, um, I, I haven't been buying any more, I haven't bought any floppies for, uh, geez, a couple of years now, I just buy digital, and uh, aren't like anything that can go on a bookshelf, like an omnibus or a trade or something like that, I just had too many floppies, taking up too much room.
2: So. Yeah, I kind of felt like that myself, and I, I, I totally kicked the habit, and then I went to New York Comic Con, and I went into a 50 cent booth. And I came out with, I don't know, 30 books, which, you know, it's not ridiculous, (laughs) it's 30 books. But but it, it, it like, rekindled that love of back issues for me. And now, you know, once you get the bug, it's hard to walk away
1: from it. Oh, yeah, no doubt. It's just so much easier to lug around a little hard drive than it is to lug around. Yeah, ten, ten long boxes. <laughs> well, absolutely,
2: absolutely. Well, I'm not going to. I'm when not. When I moved my, into
1: when we moved out to the farmhouse. I just, I'm like, no, this is not. I'm not doing this ever again.
2: Well, you have, you so, have a, a. I don't I, I actually, I don't know because I think mean, you have a lot of land, but is your house big?
1: It's uh, it's 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 decent size. It's not huge, but it's a, it's a farmhouse. It's it's pretty big. I mean, each of the kids have their own room. We have our. I have an office, and my wife has an office, and we have a bedroom. So.
2: So it sounds to me like there's there's plenty we of places. We have a lot of office. space,
1: yeah, yeah. But I just, uh, yeah, I just didn't. I don't know, moving them. They're just so heavy and uh, oh, there's yeah. so many. That's I donated quite average. a few.
2: Yeah. Well, I think ultimately the the transportation of my comics will fall on my children after I uh, go to the
1: great beyond.
3: <laughs> the great quarter bed in the sky.
2: With any luck, I'll nice. be here till I drop.
1: And you'll be buried in my so you'll stay in mint condition. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we had I, a whole
2: we had a whole discussion about that. Like my you know my kids enjoy the whole superhero thing, but they're really not that much into reading comics. My son once in a while will pick some up and read them, but not too often. My daughter pretty much not at all. Uh, so I don't even know that when you know when I do go, I don't even know that they're going to say, oh good, I get dad's comic collection. I think <laughs> they're going to say, oh shit, how am I getting rid of these?
3: Because they'd rather watch them on TV or the movie or animation or something.
2: Yeah, well, there's there's so many more. I mean, we're all in the same. I'm I am the eldest here, but we're all in the same general much, yeah. range. And uh, there's so many more distractions and options for them than when we were kids. Right. You know, there's you know, I mean, when we were that age, or at least when I was that age, I assume when you guys were too. You know, there was no 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 VCRs, nothing. I mean, I, I didn't even have cable. I just had the, you know the regular channels. You know, the video game was Pong. You know, reading comics was exciting compared to that shit. Now right. they're, they're, you know, they have so many different things between the com- the internet and the video games and, and the, just the regular movies that they have. Uh, it's not, not surprising that they don't go out of the house at all.
1: But my uh, my three-year-old's uh, most worn-out book is their trade paperback of Tiny Titans. <laughs> and not only that, there's like a group, a group picture of the Tiny Titans in the back of the book. And there are like literally 40 or 50 characters in the group picture. And she can name everyone, and it, I mean, and not just the main guys, but like Shimmer and Plasmus. Excellent, and, you know, that that's impressive. You 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 were doing yeah, your job. I know she yeah. knows them all. You know, um, but well, you
2: know, for what it's worth, the the gift my daughter was happiest with for Christmas, and she's fourteen, was uh, the the onesie pajamas uh, which were Superman. <laughs> she, she's nice. walking around. She's fourteen years old. She's walking around all, all day in a Superman outfit, you know, with the Perfect. cape and all. <laughs> so I, I take some pride in that as well.
1: Yeah, my my daughter's uh, routine on Saturday night on um, uh, digital broadcasters, a, a, a network called MeTV, um, and uh, oh, every right. Saturday night they have uh, retro Batman.
3: Seventies, yeah.
1: And then uh, Wonder Woman. So we, we usually watch Batman, unless it's the Joker, because that's too scary for her.
3: <laughs> do they show? then we the, usually uh, watch
1: like the, the first few minutes of Wonder Woman and then show the death.
2: Do they show the old Adventures of Superman on that channel?
1: That's right before Superman. Yep. Yeah, the, the lineup on Saturday night is, let's see if I get this right, Adventures of Superman, then Batman 66, Wonder Woman, the original Star Trek. They have Sven Gullion, who's like an old school horror movie host with an old, it's usually a Hammer horror movie or a Universal movie. And then I think it's uh, Lost in Space and then Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea after that. It's like a whole nice. sci-fi Saturday Yeah, night. I can usually just
2: lounge in front of that. I'm not too big on the Hammer movies, but I love the old Universal.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was amazing to me. It was a real revelation. I'd never seen Son of Frankenstein with Basil Rathbone before. Mm-hmm. And they showed it on that. And it's literally scene for scene, almost line for line, where young Frankenstein comes from. <laughs> yes, yes. And it blew my mind. I'm watching. I'm like, this is young Frankenstein, but played straight, like the dart throwing scene and the the Frau Blucher type character. I mean, literally everything in the movie is 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 what he, he based in. He, you know he based it off of for young Frankenstein. I had no idea. It's just I don't know, it's just weird. But yeah, and, uh... we usually watch the Saturday Night Sci Fi lineup.
2: For me, growing up, you know, I, I, on Channel Eleven uh, locally, they always had every Sunday morning they showed the Abbott and Costello shows. So or movies, excuse me. So uh, one of the staples for me was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah, that was, just was
1: on about him going
2: Yeah, I'm sure that's that's big on there. But I was yeah. thrilled when I the first time I saw uh, Frankenstein meets the werewolf. And really, to me, it was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Only you just took Abbott and Costello out of it.
4: <laughs> right.
2: So I mean I I I that that like rekindled well, that was the those first big
1: crossover. It was like the first huge crossover to have like Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman all in one movie.
2: Yeah, and they, they uh you know then you had like you said Son of Dracula, you had you had uh or Son of Frankenstein
1: right? House of
2: Dracula, House of Frankenstein.
1: Right. Yeah. But they, Look, they 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 switched those out with like the uh sometimes they'll show the like sometimes, every once in a while they'll show throw they'll throw in a cool like '50s B movie uh, sci fi thing like they showed them mm. a few weeks ago, or in, and they showed Beginning of the End with Peter Graves and the giant locusts a few times. But um, yeah, it's mostly Universal and then some Hammer stuff. But but it's fun. I I miss the old movie horror movie host here in Pittsburgh. They had Chili Billy for years and years <laughs> on Friday nights, with Chiller Theater. And then when I lived in Cleveland when I was a kid, there had two different guys. They had Super I remember on Channel 43, UHF Channel, and they would show like mostly Godzilla movies and like Speed Racer cartoons. And then the other guys were Big Chuck and Houlihan, and they were there for like, th- and literally did it for like 30 years, 35 years or whatever, with like little skits and showing horror movies and stuff. So There's a good documentary all about horror movie hosts on Netflix, but wow, I've totally digressed for a whole half hour, I'm sorry. <laughs> now we haven't been on that
2: long, have we? But yeah. it's uh I just just to tell you before I lose train of thought and and go you know forget to out tell you I am right now I'm loving your uh DC TV show.
1: Oh, well thanks man. I appreciate that. But
2: it, it's uh I mean you guys are doing you know you're giving a nice point counterpoint on some issues that come up, you know, you it's not all just the automatic oh I love everything kind of thing. You're critical and yet you you praise everything about it. I think it's,
1: we're it's, fair though. I try to be yeah, exactly. fair. Yeah,
2: exactly. That's my point. And 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 I'm re- I'm really enjoying it. Oh, well thanks man. I'm hoping yeah, we've been
1: we've been hoping to do like a big crossover with the, the Marvel show and the DC show and, you know, like talk about each other's shows. Did, but, that, um, might be,
2: that might have been a good thing to do during the
1: break. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. But I, we might still, yeah, you know, we might still.
2: Yeah, well, I'm still hoping that we break, can do so. our uh, network crossover one day soon.
1: Oh, that'd be great. We just got we just did the duties um, the other night and that was like a three and a half hour recording. So <laughs> we had to break it up into two shows. Mm-hmm. or you know best best of 2014
2: well one age, one so. posted already right
1: i didn't listen yeah up. we got the first half the first half is up i'm in the middle of editing the second half and it'll probably go up probably tomorrow or the next day
2: yeah there's a lot of long shows going out right now i don't know you know i guess it's end of the year stuff but a lot of people mm-hmm. shows that, it, that it, I, I sit down to listen to them and i don't I, you know i don't i generally don't look at the running time when i turn them on and, and <laughs> i'm noticing there's a lot of shows that are normally running about an hour an hour and a half that are two, three hours lately.
1: Right. Well, like, every year, this is our seventh annual uh, The Duties uh, Award, so you know, it's, like, our best of, and it's a lot of the regular categories, you know, best ongoing comic, best mini, best writer, best artist, or whatever, and we kind of talk about the argument process that got us to, you know, where we choose our, our winner. But um, we also have stuff like, you know, um, the WTF Award and uh, <laughs> the Gimme, Gimme, Gimme Award, you know, the thing that we want most in the new year. Um, the, you know, draw a uh, big props award, you know, things like that. So it kind of keeps it a little interesting and different fun, hopefully.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's what we, we tried to be different, too. We did our, our year in review, but since we <laughs> concentrate on old comics, the year in review we did was 1984.
1: That was a good year for comics. Yeah, I did a whole series a of blogs idea. all about 1986. I don't know. Basically on what we site. did was
2: we went to Mike's Amazing World, and you can, you know, punch the, put up the month,
1: so we went uh, no. month
2: by month, and we were just looking to see what came out, and you know any, anything that struck our fancy, we we talked about. So there was a lot of stream of consciousness going on, but uh, I I don't know how much fun it is to listen to, but it was a lot of fun to record. That much I can tell
1: you. <laughs> I'll probably listen if I I'll probably listen to that while I'm on mics and follow along because I have sunk so much time into that site and just oh, wasted so much time looking at covers like oh yeah. You ever play the game where you just keep going back and see you know what is the earliest cover you can possibly you know you remember. <laughs> I've played that game a few times. Awesome. Oh,
2: I I never played the game, but I'm thinking the earliest I would remember is, would would have to be a it would have to be a Superman issue from the 60s because that was my first exposure to comic books, not as a collector, but just as you know, general comics. I had a cousin who had issues that I used to sit at his house and read them. So I guarantee you, one of those will be the earliest comic I ever read of a at least of a superhero book. You might have an Archie or something like that that I saw before that, but that would be uh, right. I'm, I'm trying to. I, there's a few I remember, and I don't. I'm not even sure. Uh, some of them may have been published before I
1: was born. My, uh, I remember I had a cold or the, the flu or something, and I was sick in bed. My dad brought me home uh, some ginger ale and an Archie comic and a Batman comic, and I didn't care <laughs> about the Archie comic, but the Batman comic was uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, uh, oh, Man wow. Bat, Man Bat story.
3: I love Man Bat.
1: Yeah, and I've been, you know, was that what hooked displayed. you? This way ever since.
2: <laughs> yeah, my, I, I mean, I, I, like I said, I had comics before then, but I, I specifically remember the first book that hooked me, like for whatever reason I purchased it, and from that moment I was a collector, was Spider-Man 131 when uh, Aunt May is marrying Doc Ock on the cover.
1: Oh, wow. It was uh, 1974,
2: 1973. I couldn't even tell you off the top of my head. But that was that was the first, like from that moment, all of a sudden I was obsessed. And and it, it, I, I got it to die down a little in the late 80s, but it came back. <laughs> anyway, I might as well jump in here and do a show because uh, otherwise we, we could just reminisce and nobody's going to ever want to listen to it. But anyway, welcome everybody to Back to the Bins. I am Paul Spataro, and if you have not figured out yet, I have two guest hosts with me today. From the Legion of Dudes, Mr. Jim Dietz. Hello. And from the relatively geeky podcast network, my manservant Alan Middleton.
3: Former manservant. Well, technically former lackey. <laughs> that is true. Wow. Is manservant an upgrade?
2: Well, I don't I've, know. I, it- I have
3: to look into that. Is the insurance coverage better? Who
2: it sounds who,
1: better than lackey. Who would you
2: See, that's who would I'm you thinking. who would you say in comics would be a lackey? Hmm. Hmm. Because I think the prototypical manservant is Wang, right? So who would be right. a lackey so that we can compare them and figure out who's better?
1: Oh, what about uh, Monsieur Mala?
2: Yeah, he would be kind of a lackey. Would you rather be Monsieur Mala or or, or Wang? <laughs> uh,
1: Jimmy Olsen. No, wait, no, I did not say that. I did. Now, know. how does a lackey differ from a minion? Mm. Like you know, uh, Dark Side has minions. You know,
2: I think I think I think minions are almost totally one hundred percent interchangeable. Whereas a lackey might have a personality of his own?
3: I think I, th- I, th- I think minion is uh, politically correct for henchman, because that's a oh. gender-based term, so we had to change it. To minion. <laughs> so,
2: and then one of my crazy. favorite moments is when, uh, Alan, when your man, Dr. Doom, kept calling Iron Man lackey.
3: <laughs> that is one of my favorite stories ever. Yes.
2: Anyway, so as we were just <laughs> discussing, this episode may not... Be reaching the airwaves until at least mid-January, maybe as early, maybe as late as February. But as we record this right now, we are in that time between after Christmas but before New Year's. So I'm going to throw out to you guys: anybody get any good comic book related stuff for Christmas?
3: Really, just the obvious ones: Guardians of the Galaxy and Winter Soldier.
1: Yeah, that's I think, think those are the
3: ones that was on every, everybody's list probably.
1: I got the uh DC Cover Girls art book written by Louise Simonson. Oh, that's nice. Which is like all kind of, which is a compilation of all kinds of DC cover art going all the way back to the, you know, golden age up into the modern age uh with commentary by Louise Simonson written all through it. It's pretty good. That sounds very cool. Yeah. And
3: I did I I did get a uh a Doctor Doom figure and what I like about it is that the branding on it, I'm not looking at it right now, but the branding on it is Marvel Superheroes, so and ah. so, so and so, featuring Doctor Doom, and see, I was right all along.
1: He is a There hero. it
3: is. Affirmation, baby.
1: Cursed <laughs> <I said>, Richards! <laughs>
3: <laughs> He's part of the superhero line.
1: Cursed Richards!
2: The, o- the <laughs> only comic book thing I got was, uh, my kids got me the Pop Groot figure. The dancing, oh, dancing nice. Groot. Nice. Uh, but I also got, just from a pop culture point of view, I got the uh, Dr. Zaius figure to put next to my uh, astronaut apes. And I got the Kirk battling Khan from the Space seat episode figure. Oh. Which, uh, you know, I mean, it's they're, they're not, there's no rarity there, but they're still
1: pretty cool. Right. Well, is it wrong that every time I hear Dr. Zeus now, I hear that song from The Simpsons?
2: Dr. Zaius, I, I Dr. do too.
1: Zaius. Dr. Zaius. <laughs> Dr. Zayas, Dr. ZS. It's Oh, 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 Dr. Zayas.
2: I guess it's a sign of how clever it is that, that I mean, that, <laughs> they must have done that. has to be like 15 years ago that they did that episode,
1: maybe longer. Yeah, yeah. And well, yeah still, Phil Hartman was still alive, so yeah. It's
2: still in our consciousness, so that's that's saying something. <laughs> so I think what we're going to do today is we'll organize our books by quality. Alright, we'll the first. shittiest book first?
3: What? No, wait a minute. That is.
2: Then, kind of the spoiler, book, then we'll Paul. go to the best. Then go to the most Kind of in-between. a spoiler.
3: <laughs> kind of a spoiler.
2: You have? You think?
3: This is the appetizer. This you, is this?
2: seriously? If you give the title of your book, do you think anybody's going to say, "Oh yeah, I think that's going to be good"?
3: <sighs> Generic comic book. And now, Published by Marvel. Hello? I,
2: I got to wonder, like anybody listening to this, I got to wonder if a lot of people still don't think you said the name of the comic.
3: <laughs> it is generic comic book. If they, were, if they were carefully listening to a late December episode of Back to the Bins, this was discussed on the 1984 year in review. It was. Well, discussed might not be the, well, actually, discussed might be the right word, but not discussed. Disgust.
2: We're disgusted.
4: <laughs>
3: well, may I begin?
2: Please do, sir.
3: This will be the most generic synopsis ever. The uh, generic comic book, or the generic comic, cover dated April 1984, although strangely, not an April Fool's joke. There well, are. April yes,
2: 1984 cover date would have been released in January of 1984? January,
3: yeah. And there are no credits in the issue, but in an interview, Back Issue magazine, something like 20 to 25 years later, Steve Skeets claimed to have written it. And I was thinking about by Alan
2: yeah. Smithy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from,
3: from what I can tell, nobody has ever claimed credit for the art. That's that's not a bad sign, right? <laughs> so it's a little we, rough. <laughs> We start with a neurotic young man with lots of problems, including a job that doesn't pay well, a kid, brother in a coma, and a hot red-haired girlfriend. He is mugged by a nice multicultural gang, and is so infuriated after the mugging that he smashes one of his precious glow-in-the-dark souvenirs when he gets home. As he sleeps, he is transformed via glow-in-the-dark science into a white-haired, muscled freakazoid with amazing powers and parents too involved in their own lives to notice any change in him. He arrives at work and is inappropriately fondled by his boss before being yelled at by a coworker and sexually harassed by a hot blonde. It it was the eighties. He decides to become a superhero and he goes to the superhero tailor, you know, the one listed in the phone book. Meanwhile, a maniacal dude in a dark suit will get the world to finally acknowledge his superior scientific genius when he engages in criminal acts via his hypno helmet the extra creepy richard simmons look-alike taylor sells superhero the cheapest suit he has which makes him look a bit like a moon knight actually hey wait a minute i like moon knight hmm <laughs> After saving an old lady from Muggers, Superhero comes face to face with the hypno-powered Supervillain. Feeling his confidence ebb away from him, Superhero is totally owned, or as they say today, owned, by Supervillain. After another hard day at work, Superhero paints his old football helmet white, and the bad guys, along with Supervillain, rob the building that Superhero works at, and as he says, This is a coincidence, which practically defies belief. However, pointing that out does not make it any less true. He is able to beat beat the bad guy because he has installed a Walkman into his helmet to play a positive, confidence-building message to himself. The next morning, in a dramatic turn, we learn that it was in fact the boss who hired the criminals to steal some records that he was dipping into the company's profits, meaning our hero's one ally at his job is off to the Hooskow. Good grief, I'm even worse off now than before I became a superhero. Is this the type of reality I'll have to put up with from now on? Have to. The end. Paul, you still there?
1: Uh, Unfortunately. Now, is this part of Assistant Editor's Month? No. From what
3: I can tell, it was nothing. Nothing special.
2: At this point, Marvel seemed to be... Throwing anything they could against the wall. This is the same general era when they came out with the No Prize book, right? And and just crap like that, just to see if people would pay for them. Uh, I, I think I think it was just you know trying to come up with issues to, to give a number one to and, and hope you know that people would buy them for that reason. This uh,
3: this was actually this book was actually mentioned as one of the three or four books in that month's hype you know hype box in in letter columns.
1: I mean, they were actually, yeah, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the bullpen right now it, it was the first it was the first one in the hype box over Thor and dr. strange but yeah it's the first one hyped in the in the uh, bullpen bulletins I'm looking at right now
3: and confessions I bought it off the newsstand for 60 cents and I've had it ever since yes. I'm pretty sure I read it in 1984
2: I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you too I also bought it off the newsstand because <laughs> because I was buying actually at this point I had a pull list at, at the local store and Part of their uh, part of the directive was give me any number one that comes out. You know, this is before before <laughs> right. you know you had series coming out with new number ones oh, every couple gonna, of and,
3: weeks. And and, right. and 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 you weren't getting nine different covers.
2: Yeah, no, of,
3: of the same number one book. Okay?
2: I don't recall when the first alternate cover was. Yeah, but I don't think they did it at all at this point.
3: Now, some of the I've I've read a couple of theories about this book. And one is that there's some weird legal copyright thing going on. Because if you look at the indicia in the very small print, Marvel is staking a claim to the names superhero and supervillain, which are the names of these two characters, with hyphens. So maybe in some way they're trying to claim ownership of those two words. But the...
2: uh, Well, that's paid off well for them.
3: Exactly. But the, uh, you know, the... Sort of the legalese copyright is sort of uh, ironic, considering our hero was saved by a Sony branded product, The Walkman, which mm. was never described as a Sony branded product. So they, they were using that term as a generic themselves. So maybe that's a bit of a meta narrative they were engaging in or just you know uh, an irony of some sort.
1: Well, plus on the front on the splash page, right under the indicia you're talking about where they have super hyphen hero and super hyphen villain as trademarks it has a superhero with no hyphen uh, ah, the title see. of the book
3: <laughs> exactly so who knows who knows uh, i someone else and that this one almost makes sense maybe it was some sort of you know this is the pamphlet of how to how to write comics the marvel way you know that you know, this is this is the template for every Marvel comic book. See,
2: and, I, and I, I, you know,
3: somehow it was an internal document, an internal example that somehow they decided to publish. It's, it's, it's obviously an insane, weird book that you can't judge as a comic. Yeah, that's but, the problem but, with but, it. But, you know, the mystery is what and why?
2: The mystery is why would people like us actually buy this thing?
3: You know, I th- I th- I think speaking for my 17, 18 year old self, I think there was something I, I think there is an, an aspect of you know, before the deconstructionists. I mean this was almost an early deconstruction of comic books.
2: Ooh, you know, ooh, almost
3: ooh. a almost a you know, a a you know, a, a, a joke of what comics are. So sort of that that deconstruction slash meta narrative, before those were important parts of comic books, but I think that may just be giving it way too much credit.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm thinking yeah, I, I and I don't mean, I don't, but, I don't you know, mean but, that facetiously.
3: Yeah, I mean, but you know, Alan Moore and some of the deconstructions aren't that far away.
2: No, they're not, and no. and maybe maybe something like this might have given them the idea, but I can't. don't think that that. Steve Skeets in, in writing this was so deeply right. into it that he was really coming up with a meta narrative. I just don't. I I, I don't see well, that as, no, as as it his goal. It Doesn't
1: seem ironic in any way. You right. I mean? it, 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 it seems, seems too straight. Played straight, you know.
2: And and I I have my issues with Alan Moore, uh, and we'll discuss them a little bit more later. Uh, but I I mean I don't think you can compare his writing to this. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this is just so I I, I think the I, I I you know what I described it as when we talked about it last week was I called it a one joke book that isn't really that funny and and that's yeah. the way I see this I think yeah, it was this
3: could work you know maybe you could see it as a six page backup in something in an annual that's they need some filler space I don't know now I no but by the way Steve no for 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 good or ill Steve Skeets does credit this book. As the reason why editor Larry Hama, must have been hired him a few years later to write Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider Ham. Okay. So something good did come out of this. Well, <laughs> no, seriously, that's what. No, he, I believe he said. I,
2: I. I don't question that. I agree with you. But
3: this was I, the tryout to that book.
2: I look at the artwork in this book. Oh, right. Of the first thing, just just looking at the artwork, and I would think. If somebody submitted this artwork to a comic book company in an effort to get a job, they'd be unlikely to do so.
3: Yes, it is. And
2: yet, they published this. Yeah. I mean, it it really does. The the story, to me, like I said, fails because I think it's a one-joke story that isn't really that funny. There's nothing particularly clever about it. There's nothing ironic, (laughs) as Jim pointed out. Uh, And then the artwork is amateurish at best. It looks to me like something, you know, somebody in their mid to late teens would draw, you know, while sitting in a high school class and killing time.
3: Yeah. you know, the Again, the only thing I can almost think of, the very first ad in the book is for the official Marvel Comics tryout. And again, maybe this is, again, almost some template of what a Marvel comic is in terms of. The teen hero with problems, and the work this, and the bizarre origin story, and the generic supervillain with delusions of grandeur.
1: I, I don't no know. Helmet. Awesome, awesome use of a third tier character. Um, <laughs> I've been really enamored with uh, that uh, Superior Foes of Spider-Man book that's been out lately. Right. It's just I, I have a real uh, affinity for like uh, super you know, like B and C list supervillains. Um, more ridiculous the better, but. Think about it this way: If it's supposed to be a generic comic book, if it were really you know well written and well drawn, that would be, defeat the purpose, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess from that perspective, you're right. So in other words, they're, they're saying, "Give us they your succeeded. money, but if we gave you quality in return, you wouldn't be getting what you paid for."
1: <laughs> so there's your irony: a generic comic book. <laughs> oh, well God. done.
2: You know, we, we did a book on uh, the episode that's going to, as we record this, it's it's an episode that's going to air in a couple of weeks. It's the one I'm working on editing now. And uh, we did Sleepwalker number two. And the villain in that, I believe, is called Eightball, And he's got a big 8-Ball head and he's got a... Oh, nice. He's got he's got henchmen or minions, if you will, <laughs> uh, who are dressed up in these silly outfits and all. And and I we talked about it on that. I love the silly, you know, I, I can't even say B-list villains, you know, z-list villains as long as they're written in a way to make them enjoyable and again the the, the whole generic nature of this prevents that uh and I, like you said it, it is living up to its title but it's just what i i look i think back to you know the younger me and i wonder why i would have spent a penny on this thing
3: yeah, i think i thought it was funny or thought it would be funny I,
2: maybe you thought it would be funny but do you recall reading it back then if you did think it was fu- funny upon I've, reading it
3: i have kept it all these years
2: yeah well, i still have mine too it's because i don't so throw that, i don't
3: know if that gave me that, I, yeah, I i i don't know what to read into that but i'm pretty sure i haven't read it since that first time
2: i'm pretty sure that i picked it up then and never actually read it cuz i started looking at it and said this is shit <laughs> and i and I,
4: <laughs>
2: trying to be funny i think that's actually what i did yeah <laughs> and and <laughs> There's nothing about this that makes me feel differently about it. It's just, to me, it's it's like, it's it's Marvel exploiting its its readers by putting out something that they know is is crap.
3: This or Apollo Smile. If you had to read one every day for the rest of your life.
2: Oh God. Is is there any way I could? Get,
3: get... <laughs> and 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 you are on suicide watch, so you cannot kill yourself to uh, avoid the penalty.
2: I, you know what, I'm going to go Apollo Smile because at least there's boobies.
3: <laughs> I mean, this guy, I mean, he's, he's got a hot red-headed girlfriend who he dispatches onto the bus on page two. Wait, yeah, what, she's what, oh, what? She's in the book for dude, one page. Dude, what are you doing?
2: <laughs> Which is, by the way, actually the best drawn page in the book and it's still shit. And that, that's, that just closes it all out. <laughs> Anybody have anything to add on this thing?
1: It's
3: pretty We We spent too long on it anyway.
2: The I'm only ready. the only thing I'll give you is uh on the second to last page of the story, the uh at the bo- the bo- last panel, the guy who's getting ready to arrest the boss looks like Jim Shooter. <laughs> uh, I wonder if that's intentional. I, I would I would think no, because I don't think this artist had enough talent to intentionally make him look like anybody. <laughs> I'm gonna find out it was Neil Adams.
3: <laughs> but I looked I, I looked every every side I, I could uh... I could uh I could think of and no one had claimed credit for the art.
2: You mean for, yeah for the art, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I I mean I I just jumped to com, and obviously you would have looked there already anyway, but no luck. Well, you, it's your your book, you got to read it.
3: Okay, here's the thing. The cover. Well, look. Do you have to set a standard? <laughs> well, do you, do you, you have you, to set you, a general standard? I mean, do, do, do you need a set standard? You you are
2: a teacher by trade.
3: This is what I'm saying.
2: I'm asking you to give letter grades as you would a student.
3: I, I will. But do you have a set standard to use for critiquing, critiquing a work of art? Or do you judge it based on what was, what it was intended to do? Art the is... cover, let me just say the cover, did what it was intended to do. I'm giving the cover an A minus. Oh, it's designed well, black and white. It's eye-catching. The story is incredibly goofy. Some stakes, lots of plot holes. It does wrap itself up, C minus. Art horrible on every level. Better than I could do, D minus. Overall grade C minus. Eh, that D plus, C minus.
2: All right, I'm gonna say I'm not. I, I could never give a cover like this an A. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this cover does what it sets out to do, but there is nothing about it that's clever. I mean, it, it's basically made to. Uh, to create the image of, of, like, the generic cans of uh, food that you can buy where they have the white label. Uh, but it, it serves its purpose. It, it gives the effect that they want to give it. And somehow I ended up paying 60 cents for it. So they, I'll give it just a C. They got it, it's a neither good 20. nor bad.
3: They got a twenty out of the three moderately intelligent comic book fans on the podcast. Yeah, I never well, bought this one. You here. know,
2: I, I'm now convinced that Jim is the only moderately intelligent one that <laughs>
3: You know, the evidence seems to point that direction now.
2: But uh, I, I, like I said, I'll give a C on, on the cover just because it serves the purpose they wanted it to, as you say. The story, uh, again, one joke, it's not funny. And I think you could have been generic and still created some real humor. So I'm going to say a D. And the artwork, uh, I'm not going to go by the better than what I could do standard that you you presented it with. <laughs> uh, although I, I honestly believe I could do better than this. and uh, But I'm going to say it's an F. So overall, I'm giving the book a, a, a D. What do you think, Jim?
1: I think if they wanted to make something truly generic, they did, and it was pretty generic. I mean, the story was generic. The art was generic and unforgettable. Uh, the cover, I would give a C-, minus. the story, I'll give it a D, and the art, I'll give it an F um, for a lot of the same reasons Paul did and giving it a D overall. Um, I, I didn't buy it back in the day because I, I probably paged through it at my LCS and was like, wow, this is shit, and put it back. And, <laughs> Yeah, well, congratulations. Bought a copy of John Sable instead. Yeah. <laughs> you,
2: you're going to compare this to John Sable?
1: No, no, I'm saying that's what I thought <laughs> I <was laughs> spending my money on in 84 instead of this. Exactly. Good move, by the way.
2: <laughs> you're a better man than yeah. I, Mr. Dietz. Or Puma
1: Blues or something.
2: Right, uh, I, You know, I, I'm wondering now as we're sitting here, when I edit this, what music I'll put to the background of this. It has to be some sort of generic theme.
1: Some, some,
3: some <laughs> Muzak of some kind. Yeah,
2: you know Something what? I think the, we got to go the, with yeah, the generic uh, yeah, the thousand Back to the Bins songs
3: Yeah,
2: okay. Alan, you, you know what the generic Back to the Bins music is, right?
3: It's not the Airwolf theme.
2: No, it's the Girl from Ipanema. Uh,
3: there you go. See, perfect.
2: I think you're getting that in the background <laughs> of your uh, synopsis. But that said, going from... Oh, and, and honestly, uh, this despite how bad this is, it's better than Apollo Smile. Just to throw that in as a final thought on it. Uh, but going from one of the worst books we've covered in quite some time, and and I do appreciate you picking a really bad book because sometimes that's fun too. Uh, we'll go to uh, what possibly uh, I think will be a much better book
1: for our DC, Jim. I picked uh, something from the magical year nineteen eighty six. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware of this. you probably aware because you lived through it and. Our listeners might not, though, but 1986 was kind of a, a huge watershed year for comics. There were so many you know, great and innovative comics coming out at that point. Um, you know, everything from you know the big two doing Crisis and Infinite Earths and Daredevil Born Again, and you know the Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen to um, you know all the great indies that were coming out at that time. Nexus, Badger, um, you know, like I said, John Sable, um, all the first comics and things like that. '86 was really really big year, and this was. um the uh, the comic I picked is Swamp Thing number fifty. It's the culmination of Alan Moore's uh, American Gothic story um, that really like made his name in Swamp Thing. After he kind of he hit the ground running, kind of with the Anatomy Lesson um, when he took over. I think that was issue twenty three, if I'm not mistaken. But then soon started this multi uh, part story called American Gothic, where the kind of the fabric between heaven and hell it's kind of, or between earth and hell was kind of. Um, um, losing integrity, as it were, and you know, things were coming over, and and uh, dark things were coming over into our world, very much like a, 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 the premise of the Constantine TV show, oddly enough. Um, and he's he was a major player in the story as well. But this is a double sized issue, and it's basically the huge confrontation between dark and light. Um, you know, God and God and the devil, and it's not even the devil because some of the devils have sided with the Swamp Thing and the good side here, hoping they'll get you know favor from God. Uh, we start with Cain you know, and Abel at the House of Secrets and the House of Mystery you know, at the well. And we're saying, oh, let's climb up on the cliff and see the big conflagration. And this comic pretty much has every mystical and magical character from the DC universe in it. As I said, it's written by Alan Moore. The art is by uh, Stephen Bissett, uh, Rick Veach, and John Tolliban. And Bissett and Taliban's art in Swamp Thing was just incredible. It just really, it fit that macabre kind of off-center uh, writing that Alan Moore brought to the book so well, uh, just I mean, just the way they draw the demons in this book uh, alone, let alone the landscapes and everything else, are, are just incredible. Um, basically, all the the forces of good and evil are meeting on this giant plane. Um, this giant dark presence has kind of made itself known um, in, the, in the in the space between uh, Earth and heaven and hell. Back on Earth, John Constantine has gotten together a group of mystics, including Sargon the Sorcerer, uh, Zatanna, Zatara, um, uh, Mento from the uh, the Doom Patrol, uh, and Baron Winter and uh, and Constantine himself. And through Mento's helmet, they uh, they have him giving a running commentary of what he's seeing on this uh, mystic battleground. Uh, the first thing he sees is the demon Etrigan, uh, Jack Kirby's creation, you know, from the Demon comic in 1970 uh, or so. Uh, grabbing these living creatures to use this as armor for the upcoming battle. Um, pretty cool. And, uh, and Alan Moore writes uh, Etrigan as a rhyming demon. Which is, is kind of neat. Dr. Fate shows up. The Phantom Stranger shows up with a bunch of angels. Um, on, the, on one side um, are all, you know, all these creatures and on the other side are the demons of, of the Dark One. And then this giant bubbling black mass in the back. That at first just looks like a giant dome. Uh, later, we realize it's just basically the knuckle of one finger of this giant, giant evil being. Um, as the as the um, the battle you know, starts to get uh, more and more momentum, it's harder and harder for the circle, the arcane circle that Constantine is leading back on Earth to keep an eye on what's going on. And Mentos, like basically holding on to his sanity <laughs> by by a shred as the fighting is going on, just trying to keep uh, a look at all, all you know and everything that's going on. Um, The dark entity first pulls in Etrigan and asks him, you know, what is the nature, you know, of evil and Etrigan, you know. gives him an answer that he doesn't like and he throws him out, you know, into a splat uh, in front of him. The the discharge from the the battle is so great that the the mystics start to feel it, uh, starting with Sargon the sorcerer who spontaneously combusts, um, but they still don't break the magic circles, they can still see what's going on. It's kind of when we see what a real bastard John Constantine is. You know, this guy just died. He's like, no, nope, let's keep going. You know, um, the battle continues. Uh, Dr. The show Fate must gets, go on. Right, exactly. Doctor Fate gets swallowed by the um, the blackness, and his answer about you know good and evil doesn't please um, the black entity either, and he gets uh, ejected um, forcibly from uh, from you know the, the dark uh, being. Deadman saves him and carries him off to the angels to heal. Um, the magic circle is crumbling again. It seems like the energy is being passed around. Uh, you know, the, the psychic backlash, as it were, from them watching. Uh, this, this conflagration is um, uh, getting caught in their circle. And uh, Zatara sacrifices himself to save Zatanna's life. Um, and he spontaneously combusts. You have to keep the circle going. Uh, Mento is, is barely able to hold on. Um, the phantom stranger uh, is, is, is knocked, has his hat knocked off. You never ever see and looks up, and the specter is shown up on the scene uh, to confront this dark being. and The specter is, you know, 500 feet tall, as big as the, the dark entity. Um, they wrestle, uh, they fight, and the specter realizes this dark entity is much, much bigger than even he is. It's uh, so big that, you know, Mento reporting back on it and doing the voiceover can barely you know, grasp it all in his mind. Uh, it swallows the specter up and he asks him, What is the nature of good or evil? What is evil for? and the you inspector know, tells him it's only to be avenged and expunged and destroyed and the the dark entity spits him out and forcibly ejects him to the ground um, just beaten uh... beaten down finally with no other recourse the swamp thing looks around and then walks into the, the dark being without hesitation um, the dark entity asks, asks him a you know, little thing you know what is the what is the nature of evil and swamp thing basically tells him that he feels that the only reason that evil exists is that it allows good to it allows good to exist without evil. There is no good, and without good, there is no evil. And that the duality is what's important, not that one triumphs over the other. And the dark entity is very pleased with this, and he is he allows Swamp Thing to basically walk out. And then the uh, the battle is stopped. The, uh, the the dark being reaches up for the sky, and instead of uh, fighting, there's a giant hand reaching from from I guess the hand of God reaching down to the dark entity and joining with the uh, the black entity and everything goes crazy. Mentos and mind snaps, uses smoke coming out of his mental helmet. I mean, he is, he is beyond the pale. And instead of there being a giant conflagration in hell and uh, taking over earth and heaven, um, instead there is a duality. There is good and evil in the world, dark and shadow. And uh, the it ends with an epilogue of Cain and Abel so, you know, what's going to happen now without good and evil? What kind of stories will we have? Because I don't know. And Cain pushes Abel off the side of a cliff and says, I'm sure we'll think of something. <laughs> but um, I remember reading this when it came out on the stands and just being blown away by it. Um, all the, I mean, the writing is, is, is good. I mean, you know, and I understand people have trouble with Alan Moore. I do, too. Some of the things he's written and, and done or whatever. But I really, I, I, this stuff is solid. I, I haven't reread it probably since it came out, and uh, I've been going through the hard covers of the story and the story leading up to this climax, and it, it really does hold up for me. And th-
3: this is the era where what Moore's doing is just so ambitious, and that's that. That's the first word that comes to mind on this: is what an ambitious idea concept for a story.
2: I would say that's. That's a, a a nice way to sum it up, uh, very quickly. And and by the way, Jim, this this is a dense dense story, and I thought you just did a marvelous job of synopsizing mm-hmm. it in a very understandable
1: way. Wow, thanks. I was worried about that because there is a lot going on here.
2: No, I I, I really think you, you you did you did a terrific job with that. Uh, I I like I said I have my issues with Alan Moore, and and I don't want to make this an Alan Moore bashing session because. This book is, is incredible, and uh, I don't want to make it about Alan Moore, the man. Uh, I, I I talked a while back. We did a show tributing uh, Carmine Infantino when he passed away, and I said then I had to separate the man from the work because I honestly was never a fan of Infantino's later work, basically from the mid-'70s on. I, I was not a fan of any of his stuff. Uh, I, I found it to be kind of simplistic. I, I just didn't like it. But I met Infantino at a convention a couple of years and, he, and and the guy was absolutely a gentleman. And and I said then I have to separate the man from the work because he's such such a nice man that how could you, you know, you, you, you don't want to start thinking poorly of him because you don't like his art. Uh, <laughs> and, and the same way with Alan Moore. I think Alan Moore is one of the biggest a-holes going. I really do. I, I think he's nasty. I think he insults his readership. Uh, I think he insults the companies he works for. Uh, I, I I think he doesn't have respect for the people who read and love his work. All that said, he he does write at a genius level. He really does. Uh, he he's he's probably takes a little bit more credit for his work than he deserves. Despite that high praise, because, no, <laughs> because he he acts as if he's invented everything and that everyone steals from him. Meanwhile, uh. Almost every one of his books is, is uh, based on characters that other people created. Uh, so, so I, you know, I do have a little bit of an issue with that. Uh, but the complexity of this story, and, and I did not read all the books coming leading up to it, and I really, really do need to. Uh, but the complexity of the story and everything is just phenomenal. And I'm sure giving it as short of a time period as we are in this show, we really can't do it justice. This this probably deserves uh, the treatment like you guys gave the Watchmen when you first started uh, podcasting together, where you where you'd do one issue and you'd spend an hour breaking it down page by page. Uh, and and this probably deserves that kind of treatment, but that's not the format on this show, so we're not going to go that far into right. it. Right. Uh, but I I mean I love the cast of characters that he assembled here and the battle that's going on and then. You know, it does get very much into the nature of good and evil. And, you know, you have the hand of God and the hand of evil, whatever that may be. Uh, I guess it's you know just purely metaphorical. But uh, anyway, you know, you, you have all of that put together in, in a way where not only is it is it giving a message on the, just the nature of life, but it's, it's doing so in an entertaining fashion, which is, you know, not so easy to do. The artwork, I think, is phenomenal. Uh, I'm not really... I mean, I know of Steve Bissett, but I haven't seen a lot of his work. Uh, and a lot of times, I, I read books and I look at them as far as the storytelling, and and I'll look at it like, can I page through this and know what's going on? And and I do think this is this story is just like I said, a little too dense to to be able to just do that. Uh, you you can't get away without reading the words here. But I think the flow of the story is also just great. It it just, it really just kind of brings it along, and you can can kind of can kind of get an idea of what's going on by paging through it. You're just not going to get the true complexity of it. Uh, I wonder how much Alan Moore had to do with the way the the book is drawn. Because I do know that he usually works full scripts and he'll give a lot of directions to his artists. So I, I don't know how much of that is uh, actually Alan Moore driven and how much of it is Stephen Bissett driven. But even if you're just taking it from a point of view where he's just rendering the the images, as told to him by Moore, it's still some phenomenal work. It reminds me a lot of Gene Colin in in, mm-hmm. in a lot of the uh, images, especially Oh yeah, I can
1: definitely able... see that with the shading and the the shadows and the use of negative space and stuff. I definitely see that. Mm-hmm.
2: And and even just kind of the the bodies in motion, the way I think the way Colin does them, uh, and 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 that's a huge compliment because I I consider Gene Colin to be a master. Uh,
3: yeah, it, I uh, knew what 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 you're saying on the on the story itself, Paul, I absolutely love, love, love this cast of characters.
2: The, yeah, especially Mento, because <laughs> he's not a guy yeah. to jump out as you, at, oh, at you oh. as a guy to put into this story.
3: Yeah, but but all these, the, all all the the whole group of DC supernatural, you know, the magic crowd, right? And, the uh, trench coat brigade. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. It's
2: Dark, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, that that's one of, one of my favorite books going on now. So I really enjoy. That, that aspect of it. And you know, based on what you said about the scheduling of this episode, then probably the most recently released episode of Shortbox Showcase uh, will feature a long discussion between me and Emily about that aspect of the DC Universe in the context, what Jim said about the TV show Constantine. We talk about Constantine and about that is a jumping off point into this wing of the DC Universe and like i say on that when we go deep into the implied theology and cosmology of dc and a story like this these this type of character this type of story it is totally right up my alley great it choice is,
2: it it is not I, I am more a prototypical superhero reader right. more often than not but despite the fact that this wanders slightly off of my my normal comfort zone I just love it. Uh, just as an aside on, uh, Constantine, uh, a very, very good friend of mine. uh, Romeo Taroni is a, uh, supervising producer and has directed a couple of episodes of Constantine. Oh, so I'm great. really, really hoping that that show will get, picked. we are
3: on the, yeah, we are on the, the save Constantine bandwagon.
1: I would yeah, be, and, and, if I
3: didn't and, like it. So, and now we have a personal reason to, so.
1: Yeah, yeah. I host the DC TV podcast for HHW network. And, uh, you know we've been you know every episode doing you know as part of our our DC TV coverage uh covering every episode of Constantine so far and watching those ratings really closely so
2: yeah yeah well i'm i'm i mean from what i understand the ratings haven't been quite what they wanted but there's still a good shot of them picking it up because they see some quality in there and think an audience may pick it up as time goes on you know that that's in the current day and age of binge watching i think you have to be a little bit more patient with some of these shows get the whole season out there and then see how it does on Netflix and on DVD and, you know, just give, give the audience a chance to pick it up.
3: Yeah. Like I say, e- e- Emily and I would, uh, we would pre-order the DVDs right now if we could just to help send that
1: message. Yeah. I think if, even if it doesn't uh, stay at NBC, it might, it might have a good home at like Netflix or Amazon prime or something, right, uh, right. you know, where they, you know, they could, uh, you know, keep, keep the ball rolling because that cast is really good. Um, the writing has really improved since the pilot. I think every episode has been stronger than the last one. Um, as of this recording, the mid-season finale was really good. Um, and I had forgotten in this American Gothic story, basically, Alan Moore does like almost like a tour of horror in the DC universe. Um, we get like aquatic vampires and uh, premenstrual werewolves and you know, all this kind of different stuff. And uh, uh, you know, and this is like the culmination of all that. And if you look at that, there's like so much of the DNA of the Vertigo line. Uh, mm-hmm. In this right. sure. uh, story, I mean, you know, you get, you know, the Hellblazer book, you got, you know, Dead Man has had a couple of Vertigo books, um, you know, all this, the entire, um, you know, the Books of Magic thing that, that Neil Gaiman spun out of this has, like, you know, a lot of these same characters, too, um, so, I mean, for you know, I... I, I i totally understand people have trouble with alan more the person but i mean dostoevsky was supposed to be a real bastard to beat his wife but i still love crime and punishment you know what i mean yeah um yeah,
4: that's, that's,
1: not, i feel the weird. same way you know i love i love his ron Swamp thing i love uh miracle man and watchmen and, and, and V for vendetta would i like to hang out and listen to him talk for an hour not really but um you know i'll sure as heck read his funny books uh exactly. <laughs> but exactly but yeah this is coming back to this this is I, it's funny because I I, keep, I go back to some things and they they hold up really well and some things don't hold up at all and this just this held up so solidly uh, rereading it after you know so many years.
2: See, just just to to stay on that very that that topic that isn't totally on this book, but I think sometimes there's a little bit of Woody Allen syndrome with Alan Moore in that we know. He, you know, that he is an incredibly intelligent guy and puts together incredibly sophisticated stories. So, therefore, people are afraid to criticize anything he does.
1: Like George Lucas. Well, no. <laughs> no? I don't think it's afraid to criticize I have not heard anyone right. afraid to criticize him. But, I mean, but like, no, like, like a Woody like, Allen movie But nobody who matters. You know what I mean? Nobody edits George right. Lucas. When he was doing Phantom Menace, he's like, oh, I want to have a Rastafarian oh, right. stereotype named Jar Jar. There wasn't anybody there saying, George, that wasn't a good idea. Maybe we should back off that. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, he's that's so saying he surrounds up- himself with There's no one... Right, he just surrounds himself with people who are going to yeah, back I, up with you know, his yeah, life. I
3: think, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm talking the whole saying though is like critics. Yeah, I'm talking about like movie critics. To, you know, oh, okay. when, so,
2: when a new Woody this, Allen movie comes out, they're afraid to say, "Oh, that was a bad movie," because it's Woody Allen. So you have to say it was great because and, otherwise, and if, it'll seem like you're not intelligent enough. Exactly to Exactly, that's to what I'm
3: gonna say if it's if you don't get it, it's because oh, you don't get it. And I and I uh, think
2: that's Alan Moore's attitude I think so. towards his readers. If you don't like my work, it's because you're not smart enough to get it. And that bothers me, you know, the fact that he has that attitude. And I, you know, I, I just went on saying you got to separate the man from the work. But mm-hmm. that's one of the things that disturbs me about him. You know, I'm, I'm able to read a comic book. I know, you know, I know that, that there are very sophisticated books out there. And, and but, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly intelligent guy. I, I think I can handle reading them. And there's some that I just don't like. What can I tell you?
3: Mm-hmm. Taste is taste.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah so that that you know like i said that's that's the attitude that condescending thing that bothers me so you know and, and but but that said, I can still separate that enough to say this is this is a really 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 good book absolutely i'm um, i'm saying, uh well, you know what Jim it's your book why don 't you give us the ratings
1: first uh, I'd, I'd give it straight a 's this is like in my highest echelon of comic uh you know, it's like I put this right up there with the Claremont Burn, uh, X Men, and the Perez uh, Wolfman, Teen Titans, and uh, Long Wolf and Cub, and like some of my favorite comics of all time. So I just give it straight A's. I, I would,
2: I would tend to agree with you. I think, like I said, I think the artwork is beautiful. I think the story is incredible. I think the story's a plus. It's not an A. It's an A plus. Yeah. I'll give the artwork an A, uh, and the cover. I, th- I think it's a very, very compelling cover, and I'm going to stay. I'm going to say with an A on that also. So, a- A's across the board except for the writing, which gets an A plus.
3: Yeah, the only thing I'd say I gave the cover a B plus just because it's not as necessarily as dynamic as I'd like. But you have all these people, and it's hard to do that too. Though picking it up just as a one shot here, I don't really know why all these people are writing at me now. Probably if I'd been reading the stories leading up to this. This would have made more sense, but it's a beautiful piece of art. So I'd a B plus. But everything, everything, yeah, everything works out to an A overall. There's no. The biggest
2: negative I have on the cover is that the biggest character on the cover is a generic beast that Swamp Thing is writing. I I think Swamp Thing should be the biggest thing on the cover.
1: I just, I really dig that '80s anniversary banner. Yes, Uh, (laughs) that just reminds (laughs) me of like, you know, was the Legion of Superheroes Annual number one and like all these other different books that had that same banner that were so great.
2: I guess purely as a, an exercise in self-indulgence, I uh, not that long ago uh, posted uh, my list of the top ten movies of all time, in my opinion. And that list, you know, uh, I, I, I would admit, you know, over the course of time, that, that list changes or it's subject to change on any given day. But either number three or number four on my list, I think it was number four, uh, was the movie The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And that has consistently been in my top ten for years and years. It's one just – I think it's an awesome movie.
3: So they made this book for you.
2: And I certainly was part of the target audience for this book. There's no (laughs) question about it. And uh, so I, I picked The Man With No Name number one, which was released in May of 2008. Alan, it had a cover price of three dollars and fifty cents.
3: <coughs> you know, you know what I call that, Paul? I call that fourteen comics. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you, you expect him to solve that that, um, that explosion that says, "Still only thirty-five cents." On,
2: on the <laughs> <laughs> uh, those, those were the days, though. But you know, you know what "still only thirty-five cents" means, right?
3: It's about to be fifty cents.
2: That's right. means you're a month away from 50, or at least 40. I think they were 40 for a while. Yeah, they were. I I think they bypassed 45, but I think
1: they... they... Yeah, they did. They went from 35 to 40, then to 50. 50 and 60.
2: Yeah, 60, then to 75. Oops. Did they ever do 90...
1: There was a dollar twenty-five. I remember the Baxter's. The first Baxter books were a dollar
2: Your uh, your Swamp Thing book was a dollar twenty-five, but that was that was a double sized Yes.
3: Movie. Who would pay that much sheet? for a comic? Yikes. <laughs>
2: uh, anyway, this book was published with three variant covers in addition to the original cover, uh, which uh, is not one of my favorite things. But one of the variants was the ever so popular at the time zombie cover which sure. was a take on the uh, the DVD artwork on uh, the box of uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, only it was a zombie Clint Eastwood. The primary cover shows, uh, for the most part, a silhouetted figure against a white background, and uh, he's got a gun in each hand, and one is being held to the sky, and the other one is kind of at his at the side of his head. It's upward but not as high, and he's kind of at a... Almost a diagonal attitude, uh, angle rather. And The only part of his face you could see is his nose and his mouth, and you can see he's got the cigar in there. The story is written by Christos Gage, penciled and inked by Wellington Diaz. Colors are by Bruno Hang, and letters by Simon Boland. The storyline is The Good, The Bad, and The Uglier, and it is Saints and Sinners Chapter 1. The story opens up with a quiet western town, typical of the 1880s or so, at dawn. And we see our poncho-wearing antihero strolling in to the sleeping town. He makes his way to a barber shop and goes in. Once he's, uh, once he's in there, we see some U- Union soldiers. One is sitting on top of a building and they're kind of getting ready to ambush him. Uh, The one on top of the building has a rifle that he's aiming, and we can kind of see from his perspective, looking into the barbershop window where you see the barber chair and a blanket, and then you could see the shoes coming out from underneath. Uh, At that point we hear a sound behind him, which of course is our man with no name right behind him, who quickly dispatches the soldier with a rifle butt to the chin. The shoeless man with no name then jumps from the roof to the ground, goes back through the barbershop and comes out and outshoots three of the soldiers leaving only one alive. That soldier tells him that the reason they're after him is because he blew up a bridge, which is an event that occurred in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Uh, The man with no name finishes that last soldier by pistol whipping him in the face. That was a sign of mercy on his part because he didn't actually kill him. Having uh, dispatched of the soldiers, he puts his boots on, tosses a gold coin to the barber and heads to the general store where he fills up with supplies. As he gets ready to leave, he looks in his saddlebags and we see that they're loaded with gold coins, which is another callback to the end of The Good Demand the and the Ugly when he basically gets control of the fortune that they're seeking. And at this point he rides off. We now join two Confederate soldiers who are talking about the Yankee, how the Yankees don't know about the gold that he's carrying and how they need to find him first, figuring that he'll try and avoid people by staying in the desert, that's where they go. Cut to the man with no name who is riding through the desert. As he attempts to take a drink from a canteen, it's shot from his hand and a group of soldiers, both blue and gray, start rushing towards him. He starts, he starts riding away amid the gunfire and quickly turns around towards them with the sun to his back, which blinds them, and, excuse me, he's able to shoot them all because they're blinded and can't even see him to shoot him because of the sun. Turns out that there is one man that is left alive who was not in uniform, and he was actually who the group of soldiers was pursuing. He asks the man with no name to help the mission, at which point we see that he's wearing a priest's collar, and he collapses. He says that he's dying, but that the mission of San Antonio's is surrounded by bandits and that there are only priests and wounded men inside. At this point, he recognizes the man with no name as having been to the mission, which is yet another callback to the good, the bad, and the ugly. This character is Father Ramirez, who is the brother of Tuco Ramirez, who was played by Eli Eli Wallach in the movie. And he does appear in the movie, and he actually nurses the Clint Eastwood character to health uh, in the movie at one point at this point the priest passes away and the man with no name buries him marks the grave with a cross he does a little soliloquy talking to himself and saying that the men at the mission are probably already dead there's nothing he can do about it alone plus he has all these soldiers after him because of the bridge and the money that he carries and he rides off we see a blank area the the area that he was rode off in we see it with nobody there for a moment and then we see him turning around and coming back and saying god damn it heading towards the mission because I guess his conscience got the better of him. And the ending says, next, the mission. Uh, I, as I said, I, I, I can't, <laughs> I love The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. And I, I, I wish there was, you know, I know it's a trilogy of movies already between The Fistful of Dollars, A Few Dollars More, and The Good, The Bad and the Ugly. But I wouldn't have minded seeing a fourth one with this storyline going in it. Um, I think Christos Gage kind of captures the feel of the man with no name character there is not a lot of dialogue in the book but i think the story moves along it's meant to be in kind of a cinematic presentation and i think that's exactly the way it it comes off so for that reason i think this is probably one that's better uh, read in trade where you can get the entire story instead of uh doing it one month at a time that said even on a, on a one-issue basis, I thought this was a really good story. And I thought it really just, like I said, captured the feel of those movies that I love so much. Had either of you guys read this one
1: before? No, I had not. Okay. Jim? No, this is uh, this is the first time I had read it as well.
2: Okay, and are either of you... Although I'm, although I'm
1: pretty that, conversant with the movies. I'm sorry? I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the movies. Okay, that's what my next question
2: was. Are either of you fans of the movies... And you are, Alan, are you... uh...
3: Uh, Yeah, I've seen them, but just as part of sort of general cultural osmosis.
2: Okay. Well, what would you guys think of this then?
3: I I thought it was good. I think it would read better in trade. Again, it's a problem of modern comics, is that uh, your synopsis was about as long as it took me to read it. And there is that fundamental problem of it's a really fast read. Yeah. And I think I think they do the best they can with it by giving sweeping cinematic panoramic art making the most of those silent and those quiet pages so certainly a great uh certainly a great character study and I like that and again some of the callbacks to the movies I didn't I didn't get but knowing that that you know that those are very specific uh, specific pieces Certainly is a nice touch,
2: and I don't think that not knowing that affects your ability to read no. and, read and appreciate right. the story. I think it's just an extra right. layer of appreciation. Story a little bit,
3: yeah, sure. So I, 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 I like I, the scene. I, I, I like the scene when he's at the general store, and he's you know the the guy says, uh, "Oh, so you're getting a bunch of stuff." Not that it's any of my business, you know, as he just gets stared down by the guy says uh, four canteen's hard tack. Oh, what do you what do you need all this for? Uh, have a safe journey, sir.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, it it reminds me of a scene in uh, High Plains Drifter which was cl- directed by Clint Eastwood and it was kind of his take on the uh Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns. And uh he he was the man with no name in that as well and somebody says, uh, "What did you say your name was?" and he just looks at him and says, "I didn't." And he walks away. <laughs> And that's that's what that scene reminded me of, but uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely agree that it it is a victim of decompressed storytelling, not because it's a bad read, but just because it's too fast of a read. Certainly certain, my
1: only problem. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
3: Sorry. I was going to say, yeah, my sweet spot would be somewhere in between Alan Moore Swamp Thing Fifty and this. Compromise. <laughs> that leaves
1: a
2: very <laughs> large. <laughs> if we can
3: take, if we can take a few of the word balloons, a few of the the little bit of the, the 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 density, and just put just a little bit of it over here, so I feel like I had a a real meal, as opposed to just a little a, a little uh a little uh, canape a little appetizer.
1: Well, a lot of these, um, like, uh, IPs, they're relaunching as comics now. Like, there was just an Escape from New York comic. There's, a, you know, Big Trouble in Little China comic. There's a, going to be a Puppet Master comic pretty soon. I mean, when they when they do these IPs in comics, the, the thing that I always kind of gauge it by is, does it have the feel of what it's, of the source material, you know? And this definitely does. Like, like the color palette by, by Bruno Hang, uh, I don't really know his work very much, but I mean, the color palette he chooses here is very cinematic and very much in the style of those movies. Movies, you know, a lot of a lot of sepia, a lot of browns, a lot of oranges and yellows. Um, that I feel like the the one scene in the splash page uh, where uh, you know we get the reveal of you know saints is our sinners and saints, chapter one. I could almost hear that kind of wah 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 in the background. You know, the mm-hmm. uh uh soundtrack. It just it really had the. I think you know sometimes with these uh, adaptations or, or um, you know sequels or whatever. Uh, they they don 't really get the feel of the source material um while advancing in their own story, and I think this really did um I appreciated the the continuity nods where it fits in the continuity of the other movies and uh, how it kind of ha- has those nods, but they aren't like integral to the story like Alan was saying he didn't you know he only knew in you know, the movies in passing or whatever, and he still enjoyed the story. I think my only issue would be paying a three fifty cover price for it, like I could see paying like in a ninety nine cent sale on Comixology. Since I get a lot of my issues that digitally now, uh, maybe picking it up like you know four, you know, in a four issue, or how long is the uh, the uh, the mini Is it four or
2: no? I think they had a, I think it was twelve issues. Twelve, and then well, but but I think this if I remember right, because it's been a little while since I actually read these, but uh, I think there were two different storylines over those twelve issues, and then the Man with No Name was discontinued, and then they did. I think it was called Might have been called "The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly." They came out with it under a different title and did like another six issues.
1: But I think the art is pretty good, and, um, and the, it definitely captures the feel. The, the script definitely captures the feel. And, but you may, you both make uh, you, you know, the point about how, how you know, decompress storytelling or whatever. And I think they're going for that cinematic feel, and unfortunately, that results in like you know two or three panel pages. Uh, well, with, you, you know, really, in- really great art, but just like 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 Alan said, you know, just uh, a really quick read. You, know?
2: you got to keep in mind too the the Sergio Leone style would be the slow burn.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Which,
2: you know, which doesn't necessarily translate to to uh, you know <laughs> sequential storytelling in in, in with drawings, uh, but I mean. Think about like the final shootout at the end of the movie. It goes from close up to close up to close up to close up, with the movie, uh, the music, in the background building and building and building. And he's building tension, of effectively doing the slow burn. And I think it's almost impossible to do that in this medium.
1: Well, that last page where he, he, he you know, he has that um, that little makeshift cross for the the preacher, and he's explaining to him all the reasons why he can't help him. And there's just that repeating panel without him in it. Right, and then him coming back to it—that I thought was very cinematic. That seemed like something that would be in a Leone film. You know what I mean? That kind of framing where him you know writing in and out of frame like that.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, and well, I think it's, did it. it's yeah, it's it's
3: kind of tricky because the my recollection is the Good and the Bad and the Ugly is actually a pretty long movie,
4: oh, it's,
2: especially yeah, for like its time,
3: two and a half hours, hours maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's sort of tricky. How do you get that feel? You know, that aspect of the feel—the slow burn when. Even, you know, concentrating on the art, to take in the art, I'm still flipping the page pretty quick. You know, so it's it's, a, it's that weird struggle to get that type of cinematic on a mm-hmm. comics page. There are other types of cinematic. It's easier to get on a comics page.
2: But I, I do think they effectively do it. I, it. You know, I do think it ends up translating to the fact that it reads better in trade uh, yeah, because you, know, you get, I, you get to continue the story. That. Mm-hmm. Right. But but I do think they do capture that slow burn, and I think you know Jim hit it on the head, that, that one scene where they show him riding off, then they show two shots of basically right. the exact same sh- scene without him in it, and then a fourth shot with him turned back going the other way and saying, God damn it, to himself. I, I That does have the feel, like I could see that in the movie. Uh, right. And and, and that, that's one where you'd have almost dead silence during those blank shots, and then you'd have that little kind of... Doo-doo-doo kind of music as he you know, turns So you can almost hear
3: you, know, you, you can almost hear those distant foot those distant, you know, footfall of the horse riding away mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. slowly coming back.
2: Yeah, and it it's, right. it's it, it, I think it effectively captures the the uh, you know the, the feel of the movies. You know, you, you talked about how sometimes with these properties how, you know, they're hit and miss. The one recent one I could think of and I thought it was a big miss was when Chakin did the prequels to Die Hard. With the uh, you know the Bruce Willis character as a uh, rookie cop, and and I don't think it captured the feel of the movies at all. Hmm. I don't know if you. If well, you I'm glad
1: far. I missed that then. Yeah.
4: That was
2: uh, that was when I picked up on on a comicsology sale and uh, still kind of regretted
4: it. <laughs> yeah. it I didn't pay players.
2: a lot. I think it was a dollar an issue, and it still felt like too much.
1: <laughs> they should you should have paid them, or they should have paid you a dollar to take it off their hands. Um, but yeah, I think this, like, like you're, like I was saying, you know, these IPs sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. I think Christos Gauge really understands, you know, what yes. kind of what he's, you know, what he's writing to, you know, as it were, in the sequel um, he's writing here. So um, it definitely has that feel.
2: And I, I wonder if the audience is is pretty much exclusively people like me who love those movies and decided to read the comic to try and get that feel, or if there are any people out there who said, oh, "Let me give this a shot." And then, because they read this, went out and saw the movies. Hmm. That, that would be
3: interesting to hear. Yeah, it's hard to tell like with these, aspects. like, with these IP based stories. How how much of it is straight nostalgia, and how much of it is really turning people on? I would imagine the preponderance is nostalgia. Yeah, I would, would hope think so. so. You, you would hope some of it might go the other way.
2: Well, to to me, if if you're Working to an audience on pure nostalgia, though, as the creators, not, you know, you're in the audience, it doesn't matter. But as the creators, if you're working and your audience is going to be pure nostalgia and that's all you're worried about, you've already limited your potential audience and you mm-hmm. don't have the chance for the breakout hit. Because now you, yeah. you've said, okay, I have to get the Venn diagram of all comic book fans who happen to be fans of this, <laughs> this right. movie. And th- that's, that's my maximum total audience.
1: Well, I think this comic kind of does it right. It's not totally dependent on its source material. It's a story of its own. It seems. Yes. You know, and, and but it's but it fits snugly in that continuity, and I think that's the best you can do with this kind of thing. Rather than try to, you know, either rewrite everything or you know just totally miss the mark or whatever they just you know try to be respectful but tell their own story and if it doesn't stand out on its own as a good story it's you know if it's too like you say Paul too slavish to the source material then it's, and it can't stand it on its own then it's just going to i think fail yeah, yeah but, it, think but it, it sounds
3: it, like sort of to put it in more modern terms there's some easter eggs for the fans of the movie
1: yeah that's right. what i, I saw it, nice it, it's
2: yeah. there are things in there that if you're familiar with the movie enough you say oh wow i remember that i remember that uh but it's not it, first of all, it doesn't hit you over the head with them. Second of all, if you're not aware of it, it doesn't impede your ability to enjoy the story. So if – I mean I think you do pretty much have to be a fan of the Western genre to really appreciate this book. Uh, but if you are, you don't necessarily have to be a fan of the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, to, to enjoy this. And you know, I could see somebody who's not picking this up and saying, oh, I do want to read more. So I do, I do think they have the possibility of expanding their audience. But obviously, you know, we're talking six years ago and it's it's now gone by the wayside. So (laughs) I think that that ship has sailed. Anyway, I'm going to say from a cover point of view, and if I'm just going with the primary cover, I'm not that crazy about it. I'm not really usually a big fan of the minimalist cover. And I think that's what we have here. I don't think this is one that's going to make somebody, I I don't think this is one that's going to make anybody who's not a fan of the movies pick it up. So, and even then, it's not dynamic enough to necessarily catch the eye of everybody who is a fan of the movie. So I'm going to say I think the cover fails a little bit, and I'm going to give it a C minus. It's not badly rendered, but I think uh, conceptually it's it's not what it should be. Although I do appreciate the uh, the zombie variant a lot. And I think that one would be far more likely to actually pull in an audience. The story does suffer from decompression. But I think that's a necessary evil. I think this should have probably been published as a graphic novel right from the start instead of being published in individual issues. Uh, But I do think it serves its purpose. I think it's an enjoyable read. It's just too quick of a read is the only real negative to it as far as I'm concerned. So I'm going to say I'm going to give the story a B. I I think it's above average, but it's not not a, a, a huge, huge hit because it is a little sparse. Uh, and the artwork, I think, when you combine it with the coloring, as as Jim was saying, the, the color palette really does do it justice. Uh, I'm going to say the art is also a solid B. And I'm going to give the story, I'm going to give the book overall a, a B-. minus.
3: Yeah, I thought the, uh, I, th- I, I liked the, um, I liked the composition of the main, of the main cover. I did like the, the use of negative space. And it, it it got across what it was supposed to get across which is that it's a western you know you can tell the guys wearing a, a sombrero or a western hat firing a couple guns in the air so uh, you know i i do understand that it's a western so i thought that was effective you know is it bb minus B-? again nothing overly uh dramatic about it uh but I, I think effective gets the job done i did she said similar to the story uh, I, th- I thought it was a real nice character piece at this point. And, uh, you know, slow burn. Uh, I think, think as we've all said, I th- think that I like the quality of the story. I wish there was more quantity of story. <laughs> uh, but again, B, uh, B-, B-, and again, on the art, I thought there were some real nice individual pages. I did think that that shot of the, you know, the uh, the sort of the, Covers the the splash page with the with the title. the The title page was nice. The sinners and saints, uh, chapter one, page was nice. That page at, at the end, as we've talked about, with the with the repeating um, shot of the uh, of the grave. Uh, the strength of the art of the book is the coloring, uh, as everyone's pointed out. So that that's in the high B range. Overall, a B. Again, I enjoyed it. it. You know, if I see the full trade at the public library somewhere along the line, I wouldn't mind picking it up and seeing where the story goes. It's certainly engaging. You know, for the uh, for what it is.
1: How about you, Jim? The uh, I'd say for the covers, like a C. I mean, they were just okay. You know, I'm I'm not a real fan of like zombie variants or whatever. So it's kind of not not my wheelhouse. So you know, I give the, I give the covers a C. see uh, the art for the book. I give a solid B. I really enjoyed it. Again, the the color palette was really good. Um, the 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 point of view and like the you know quote unquote cinematic blocking, as it were, of the different scenes. I really enjoyed um, story. I probably give like a B B plus. It really does have the flavor of the uh, of the movies, and I really appreciate that when they try to you know write a you know de facto sequel like this in a comic um that it you know that it fits and it doesn 't just you know um you know just a bunch of references to the source material it 's a story of its own, so I guess overall a b for the for the issue
2: yeah so we're we're pretty all con- consistent all around with b's i guess on this one
1: yeah it's it's good okay. but it 's not yeah. you know, earth shattering
2: yeah it's just a you know a general a, a, basically you know my my way of looking at the grading is c is average it 's not particularly good it's not particularly bad it's average. So a B is, you know, it's a little bit above average. It's not, you know, the end all and be all, which would be an A, uh, but it's, you know, it's a good book, and that's that's I think where this one falls. Yeah. So I guess that's about it for tonight, and uh, I want to thank you both for coming on. I uh, it's always a pleasure.
1: Glad to be here, Paul. Me too. It's my last, probably my last podcast of the year. That's what we uh, it, so. Considering
2: tomorrow <laughs> is New Year's Eve, I can guarantee you it is mine. <laughs> I was
1: gonna say,
3: hopefully he doesn't mean 2015 when this is coming
1: up. You never out, know. There might I'm be an good. emergency podcast going down that they call me in on, you know, so... That's, you never know. Alan was actually when... called in on an emergency
2: podcast meeting because uh, Scott and Bill couldn't make it, and I, I kind of like the three-man dynamic, so...
3: And the good news is I grabbed the best book I could find.
2: <laughs> wow. Well, you know what, I... I I don't think this show is about always
1: picking the greatest books. That, that's why <laughs> this we. The book could be the good, the bad. The show could be the they, good, be the this, bad, and the ugly. I
3: think this episode was the the great, the pretty good, and the ugly. Yeah, I think that may
2: be the title of the episode when it gets posted. I don't
3: mean the I don't mean the hosts. I mean the books. Just to be clear.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? I, I I could I could live with being any of those three anyway. It Doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the show, you know, the, the the whole idea of the show is to give a random sampling of books. Uh, so that would include the good, the bad, and the ugly. And and I think you know, we 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 truly <laughs> gave a random sampling here because we gave a book that I think people would consider a great, you know, an all time great. We we picked one that is extremely forgettable, and we picked one that's you know a solid book, but nothing earth shattering. So I think we have a good sampling. <laughs>
0: Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Uh,
2: if you guys are good, I'm going to take like a five-minute break because my dog is barking to go outside. Sure.
3: <laughs> got to do what you got to do.
2: I'll Amen. be I'll be back in a minute. If you guys want to just shoot the breeze while I'm doing this, feel free. <laughs>
3: Come on, let's go. Yeah, this this was a great story. And I was never into this stuff at this era right. for some reason. I was yeah, into like you smart. were saying, the John Sables and all those, so somewhere I'd I'd fallen out a little bit. I'm a a DC guy, but sort of towards this era, this uh, I sort of missed out on first round yeah. of Alan Moore.
1: This is about the first time I had like a poll list, um, right, gotcha. or, like the first time I had like an LCS I could go to on a regular basis, when you know, the direct market was just kind of starting. So.
3: was yeah, I just keep yeah. scrolling through this. Obviously, the cover tells you what you're getting into, but as they just keep adding <laughs> adding characters and adding characters to it. Oh, oh yeah, I know it's too, like... and she's in it and they're in it. Are you kidding me?
1: Yeah, it's like I a big so tour you, you, of the D.C. You're, yeah. try,
3: you're trying to come up with someone from that wing of the party who's not there. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. There's no one obvious who's missing. <laughs> That's
1: for sure. Maybe Mr. E or something. Yeah. Or Terry Thirteen. He's not there. Right, right.
3: But when the uh, when the Specter gets owned, you know you're in trouble.
1: Yeah. That was a great that <laughs> one
3: page that one page spread of the Specter was a terrific piece of art too because his foot comes down on the page before and you see just how teeny tiny everybody is
1: in comparison. Well I mean Paul made a good point they used Mento there and like the only thing he's really known for is being kind of crazy right. if I remember correctly like in Doom Patrol he was kind of nuts too so <laughs> him going nuts here is right in character I guess yeah, yeah. yeah I am uh, getting ready to make the New Year's goulash tomorrow
3: so. Ah, very nice.
1: <laughs> a bunch of people over and eat goulash. It'll be a lot of fun.
3: Beautiful. Is that, uh, is that, is that one you set in the crockpot all day?
1: No, I cook. I it on the stove all day. I um, we used to have, My wife and I used to own a restaurant uh, up oh, until right. our daughter was born. Uh, I'm a chef, and and she worked in front of the house. But um. So that was our signature dish was our goulash, so nice. we're having a bunch of old friends over and uh, it'll be a good time.
3: That 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 has got to be about the worst. I mean, in terms of hardest job there is, I can imagine. Especially that's especially what, with kids, that was probably the
1: right call. Well, that's but yeah, that's the, why we sold it. I mean, it was yeah, our the choice commitment of either, you have to
3: have to it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was almost well, 80 hour weeks for eight years. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So. But yeah, when our daughter was born, we were like, "Yeah, we we'll, oh, we'll step out now, so we you know, we can actually raise her right. <laughs> and not let her be <laughs> raised by wolves or something."
3: So, is this uh, is this grandma's goulash recipe from the old country?
1: I hope. Actually, it's from my it's from my <laughs> wife's family recipe. It's a 17th century recipe, and uh, her family uh, traces back to uh, Transylvania, actually oh, wow. Transylvania part of Romania. <laughs> And this is called Zekele Goulash. It's uh, it's her family's recipe. So yeah, that is it awesome, could, literally man. goes back like two or three centuries. We we had awesome. a whole thing about it in our in our menu back in the now. In the your wife is a house. chef also. No, she's a really good cook. She hasn't trained or worked on line or anything, but she's a good you know, home cook. She worked the front of the house um, in our restaurant. She you know she's a really good hostess and knows a lot about wine and um, I mean she ran the whole front of the house in our restaurant. and I ran the back so.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna hold off to get into my book for a few minutes because they're still outside. I'm waiting for them to come in, but uh, as soon as yeah. they come in, then we'll get rolling on mine. But uh, if only if only I was close to Pittsburgh, I'd be coming over for some goulash <laughs> tomorrow, buddy.
1: I'm making I think uh, 15 pounds of.
2: Uh, that's I can't shoulders. eat that much. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: well, that's just for it's me. Uh, I'd take another batch there. for you guys.
2: Well, you're a big dude. You, you could probably eat a couple of pounds.
3: Hey, everybody. What's up? Dr. Bill in the house.